Welcome to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health, the podcast that shows you how to live a longer and healthier life, showcasing doctors, clinicians, and patient stories. The goal of South Coast Health is to help and inspire you to navigate your health journey with knowledge, comfort, and ease. I'm Patricia Raskin, and I'm host of Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. And today we are talking about diabetes management. My guest is Dr. Charles Isle. He holds a medical degree and PhD in biochemistry from the University of Chicago. He completed a fellowship in endocrinology at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Isle also completed a visiting fellowship in medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. A practicing endocrinologist for over three decades, Dr. Isle is a member of numerous professional societies, including the Diabetes and Endocrine Society of Rhode Island, of which he is president. Dr. Isle is also a retired captain in the U.S. Naval Reserve. Dr. Isle is board certified in internal medicine and in the subspecialty of endocrinology and metabolism. Welcome, Dr. Isle. Thank you for having me. And also, we are here with John McGlynn, who is a patient of Dr. Isle for over 20 years and just retired. All right. So, Dr. Isle, I'm going to start with you. We're talking about diabetes management today. And I think my first question is, is diabetes more prevalent today than it was five or 10 years ago? Has it increased? Is it more managed? Where are we with diabetes management now? Well, let me first specify that there are two kinds of diabetes. There's type 1, which is insulin requiring, and there's type 2. And there's been an absolute explosion of type 2 diabetes, which is almost certainly related to an increase in obesity. Uh, There's a high correlation between weight gain and uh, insulin resistance, and insulin resistance over time leads to diabetes. So the short answer is, yes, there's been an increase. I think there's been a slight increase in type 1 diabetes, possibly because of increased detection, uh, particularly early on in the disease. But uh, type 2 diabetes makes up 90 to 95% of all diabetic patients. How do they differ, type 1 and type 2? So type 1 is an absolute deficiency of insulin. And if you don't have it, it's fatal. Uh, And this was... Uh, corrected about 100 years ago when insulin was discovered and it was first started to be used. Before that, the only way to treat that disease successfully was a severe uh, calorie and and carbohydrate restriction to prevent the development of uh, ketoacidosis. Type 2 diabetes is a, a relative deficiency of insulin and insulin resistance where the insulin is made and there's plenty of insulin in the body, it just doesn't work very well. And the medications that we have uh, developed uh, either increase the insulin level in the body or they make insulin work better or there's an alternate way of disposing of insulin in the body and the medications we have now are very successful. Do certain nutritional programs, certain foods uh, help to improve the quality of type 2 diabetes as well as exercise? So the largest effect of diet is restriction of carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are long chains of sugars, and when they are digested, they're broken down into sugar molecules, which raise blood sugar. So in short, if you can eliminate or reduce carbohydrates, it goes a long way to correcting high blood sugar. Can you prevent type 2 diabetes through diet? 
Well, diabetes is partly genetically determined. Type 2 diabetes is genetically determined. Type 1 is really not. And for people who are children of diabetic parents or women who have had gestational diabetes, we know that we can either delay or prevent diabetes by restricting or lowering their weight. Other than that, you can't obviously prevent genetic diseases unless you can alter the mechanics of uh, carbohydrate metabolism. Okay. John, I know that you've been working with Dr. Isle for over 20 years, and he's helped you with your diabetes. What recommendations has Dr. Isle given you that has helped you and really made a difference? Well, as doctor was just saying, diet, cutting back on the carbohydrates, I was told to go brown, brown rice, brown bread, sweet potato, keep away from the white bread. And that's one of the things he's pushing. Also exercise. And his favorite one for me is to cut down on my pizza because of the high carbs. Dr. Isle, question about that. What if you eat a gluten-free pizza that doesn't have the gluten in it? Does that make a difference? A little bit. Other pizzas have carbs from different sources besides wheat. So, for instance, oats or other things that go into bread will have carbohydrates too. John, did you have diabetes in your family? Yes. My grandmother on my mother's side my grandfather on my mother's side, and my mother, all type 2 diabetes. When did you detect diabetes? I, I never had a clue that I was diabetic until I was going with Dr. Thoreau, and he was doing blood work. He was my internist. He did my blood work, and one day he determined I was diabetic. And he put me on metformin and glipizide, and I, I felt fine. But the blood work wasn't there. So I, I'll never forget this. Doc told me one day, Dr. Thero, John, I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. I'm going to send you to the master, Dr. Ryle, and he'll get you squared away. And I think I'm not his best patient, I can be honest with you, <laughs> but I'm trying. And he's, he's working hard. <laughs> How long has this been detected? When did you discover this? I would say about 23 years ago, and I stayed with Dr. Thoreau for a few years, and that's when he wanted me to go to Dr. Ryle. What's the difference, John, in how you feel when you follow the program Dr. Ryle has suggested? To the letter, let's say. (laughs) Oh, yeah, to the letter. I mean, I I feel wonderful. My, My daily blood work is beautiful. Lately, it's been a little bit high, but there's reasons for that. I just switched over to insulin, and we're we're working on that. When I first went on it, we had very low blood sugars, and doctor made a couple adjustments. Doctor, I'll explain the insulin program that you have John on. First off, I should tell you that there are many different kinds of insulin. There's long-acting, there's short-acting, there's different companies that make different versions of insulin, and there's premixed insulin, which contains some of both long- and short-acting insulin. I don't have John's records in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he's on a premixed insulin now. And so when you give that insulin, you have to give it with food because the short-acting component could make your sugar go too low if you didn't eat. Uh, By the same token, 
it only typically this pre-mix insulin is given twice a day, sometimes three times a day. For instance, if you give the insulin in the morning with breakfast, the sugar could be high after lunch because he might have had a big lunch and the morning insulin dose wasn't designed to cover that. So there are a lot of subtleties when we give insulin. An alternate regimen would be to split the two components into separate insulins and you would give a long-acting insulin once a day and a short-acting insulin with each meal. But that increases the number of shots from two to four per day. So a lot of patients are reluctant to take four shots. They'd rather just take two if they can control their sugar that way. And is it always done by injection? Is there another way to take insulin? There is. There's a way of getting inhaled insulin. So that's an alternate way. And there are uh, patch devices or pump devices which can deliver insulin through the skin with implanted uh, cannulas or needles which stay in place. So they don't have to give separate injections, but the insulin is getting absorbed through the skin by another means. Is that popular? Well, the daily patches are not particularly popular, but there is some use for them. But the insulin pumps are very popular with type 1 diabetics because then they don't have to take so many frequent injections. The only downside of the uh, insulin pumps are expense because they're maybe four to $5,000 each, and insurance only covers maybe 80%, sometimes 100%. Uh, and the pumps have limited lifespan. So every four to five mm-hmm. years when the warranty runs out, they have to get new ones. Is there a difference in reaction of patients if they have type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes? Uh, no, insulin is insulin. But people who have type 2 diabetes, as I mentioned earlier, are somewhat insulin resistant. So they often have to have higher doses of insulin to get the same I effect. See. And people with type 1 diabetes are more typically lean. And so when lean people need typically lower doses of insulin. What is prediabetes and is that reversible? Prediabetes derives from the fact that diagnosis of diabetes is made by numbers. And that is based on the number of fasting blood sugar and post-meal blood sugars. So by convention, diabetes is agreed upon as having a fasting blood sugar of 66 to 99. If the blood sugar is between 100 and 125, that is either called impaired fasting glucose or prediabetes. Another definition of diabetes is a fasting blood sugar that's 126 or higher or an elevated hemoglobin A1c. Uh, The hemoglobin A1c is a number that is derived from a form of hemoglobin, which is made by the chemical alteration of the hemoglobin molecule from exposure to sugar in the blood. And since blood cells live on average about three months, the hemoglobin A1c number is a report card for your previous three months of exposure to sugar. So that, that number is universally used also. So if someone is pre-diabetic and they don't know it, what would be the sign of that? Typically nothing. The only sign would be a number on a blood test because an elevated blood sugar of, say, 105 is only minimally elevated and there's no symptoms to that. Blood sugars have to be elevated like to 180 or 200 before sugar starts to spill into the urine, which then causes people to urinate frequently. So 
with a minimally elevated blood sugar, there's no signs. So how do you know if you're not sure? Well, you would have to get your blood tested. Uh, sometimes people have a family member who has a glucose meter and they'll randomly check their blood sugar and that's been discovered by accident that they had an elevated blood sugar from testing their brother or sister's or parent's meter. Okay. What is gestational diabetes and what causes it? Gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugars during pregnancy. And it usually occurs in women who are overweight to begin with or women who are children of diabetic parents. It goes away after pregnancy when patients deliver. Sometimes it'll persist postpartum, and most of the time it does, but then it'll come back with subsequent pregnancies. Interesting. So if someone is at risk for diabetes, they might have had it in their family, they don't have it now, but they're at risk, what are some necessary lifestyle changes that you would suggest to them? Uh, weight loss would be the principal recommendation. Exercise, which is exercise makes the body utilize sugar better, makes insulin more efficient, either whether it's internal or administered externally. And then, of course, restriction of carbohydrates, either simple sugars, breadstuffs, cereals, bagels, pizza, pasta, all those are poison for diabetics, basically. You have just have to monitor your intake carefully. But isn't it good for people who aren't pre-diabetic or diabetic to follow rules of not too much heavy carbs? Oh, of course. Uh, one of the things that happens when you eat a lot of carbohydrates or simple sugars is that your blood sugar goes up quickly and then insulin is secreted from the pancreas to make the body utilize that sugar. And sometimes the insulin release is excessive and it can cause a rapid plunge in blood sugars later on in the, in the day. And people get what's known as reactive hypoglycemia. So if you have that, then the, the cure for that is to restrict your carbohydrates so there's not such a, a big surge in the sugar or a spike in the sugar after a meal. John, what does your program, what does your diet look like ideally? Uh, in the morning, I try to have an egg beater, English muffin. It's in the morning when I take my insulin. And then the afternoon for lunch, it'd be like a turkey sandwich or, you know, a ham sandwich. And then at night at, at dinner is the kind of the Dr. I want to close your ears. Uh, <laughs> it might be a pizza. I try to eat chicken and fish, but I love red meats too. I love steak. So it's, it's not easy with the diet, it's, it's, but it's important. Dr. Isle, do you suggest animal protein or plant-based diet? What works well, or does it depend on the person? I'd say it really depends on the person. Protein and fat are metabolized and also contribute to sugar in the blood by other means. So you, there's no free lunch. Whenever you're having calories of some sort, you get a rise in your blood sugar. It's just that the carbohydrates make the biggest impact. And as long as you find things to your liking, it doesn't really matter. The safest diet is probably something called the Mediterranean diet, which is high in protein and vegetables, but it's impossible to eliminate carbohydrates entirely. What about plant-based diets? They're fine. I think it's, it's, I don't know if you get enough variety from plant-based diets. 
certainly you can put in spices and peppers and make things tastier, but I think there's a lot less variety in a plant-based diet. So, Dr. Isle, if somebody has been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, what are the first steps that you would help them take? Well, I'd educate them about the disease. Uh, a lot of people with diabetes don't know the first thing about diabetes unless they have a family member who's had it. They also need to know about the long-term complications of diabetes because they're very far off in the future and usually have no immediate impact. So I try to impress people that there are serious complications of diabetes that they can avoid if they can control the disease. And the third thing I would do is have them start measuring their blood sugar so they can see what's happening. When I first started off in medical school, they didn't have the devices that we have now for pricking your finger and testing your blood. We used to have to draw blood or do urine testing to see what was going on with people's blood sugar. Now we have these wonderful meters and we have these terrific monitors that people wear continuously to get an idea of what's happening with their blood sugar at every minute. So the opportunities for monitoring are almost endless and that makes a huge impact. So I think when people start seeing what's happening with their sugar, they start realizing, uh-oh, this is now what we're going to have to do to change that. Yeah. So they can monitor it themselves in today's yeah. world. Yeah. What about alcohol, the intake? Well, it's just an alternate source of calories. So if you have alcohol, which is allowed, uh, you have to subtract calories from somewhere else. Uh, some medications don't go well with alcohol because they can increase the risk of uh, low blood sugar. Or sometimes, particularly with metformin, there's uh, an adverse reaction which you can get easily or easily nauseated. So it really is, uh, has to be adjusted on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. And there's also the sugar in the alcohol. So that converts to sugar, correct? Right. right. Okay. What are some myths about diabetes? You've been talking about long-term consequences, but what are some myths that people um, assume but aren't true? I think uh, most myths are that the terrible complications of diabetes are not going to happen to me because mm -hmm. they're so far in the future, or mm -hmm. they don't think that their sugar is going to have that big an impact. But after all the years that I've been taking care of patients with diabetes, I see it. And sometimes you really just can't impress upon patients enough the, the seriousness of the disease. Dr. Isle, is diabetes for life? Can you cure it? Can it go away? So type 1 diabetes is incurable. There are trials where they're trying to do transplants of islet cells or pancreases, and that replaces the body's deficiency of insulin. The pancreas transplants are done. Islet cell transplants have been tried for years by harvesting the cells that make insulin from family members or cadavers to try to give those cells an opportunity to work in the recipient. That technology hasn't been that effective or widespread. So type 1 diabetes, I think we have to regard, at least at the present time, as incurable in the sense that there's no alternative other than insulin from some source. Uh, type 2 diabetes, on the other hand, is reversible. And it's been shown many times that weight loss, particularly dramatic weight loss, mm -hmm. like occurs with 
gastric bypass or other bariatric surgical procedures, or now with some newer medications that we have, which lead to dramatic weight loss, it goes away. Uh, that doesn't mean it couldn't come back in the future, mm -hmm. because we know that people who have diabetes, if they regain the weight they lose, it, it returns. So it is, it is reversible. But here's my question. If someone loses a lot of weight and they're still eating a lot of carbs, are they at risk? Yes. It really kind of depends on how effective the weight loss was. We don't know how the beta, the beta cell gets more sensitive and it starts to regain some of the function that it had when the weight loss occurs. But it doesn't mean that it's perfect. So I'd say it's prudent to watch your carbs even after bariatric surgery. Dan from Mattapoisic Mass was playing paddle tennis when it happened without warning. By the second set, I couldn't play anymore. You know, just started feeling tightness and couldn't shake it and it wouldn't go away. Dan was having a heart attack. Luckily, he had the region's most advanced cardiovascular facility close to home and was taken by EMS to the Heart and Vascular Center at Charlton Memorial in Fall River. The thing I remember going into the operating room, the doctors and nurses were phenomenal. They walked you through it every step of the way. With 20 years experience, South Coast Health's Heart and Vascular Center of Fall River treats over 2,000 patients a year at one of the most active cath labs of any community hospital in Mass and Rhode Island. To find out more, visit southcoast.org slash heart. When you have a heart attack and you need open heart surgery, you want the best care. We have such a great hospital system right here in our backyard. It saved my life. South Coast Health, more than medicine. What about meal kit services? Can that help people with diabetes? I would say yes, if they limit the amount of carbohydrates, but also, if they limit the total calories, I'd say people who have tough time limiting their intake might eat extra beyond what they're getting from the supplied meals. Then that would kind of defeat the purpose. Okay. So if people are ordering the, the home-delivered meals, if they choose, sometimes there are choices where they can choose the Mediterranean diet or other programs. So that would help if they had a choice because it would be more regulated. What do you think? Exactly. They can choose the option that's healthiest for them. Those certainly have been advanced in recent years. What innovations in cell transplants do you think could provide a cure for diabetes? Well, I'd say with embryonic stem cell research, there is a way of changing the program of certain cells. If they can devise an insulin-producing cell, a so-called islet cell, uh, and transplant those, I'd say that would be a potential cure for type 1 diabetes. I don't envision a cell transplant being that particularly useful in a type 2 diabetic because patients with type 2 diabetes already make insulin. They just can't make enough. So if we could transplant something that regulates appetite or food intake, that would be the best option for a type 2 diabetic. Dr. Al, talk about the new device called bionic pancreas. So the bionic pancreas is just another name for a system where insulin is delivered by a pump in an electronic or algorithmic way based on continuously monitored blood sugars. So the, the, there is a device which continuously monitors your sugar. In fact, it's called a CGMS, which stands for Continued Glucose Monitoring System. And this monitoring system is integrated with 
any of several companies that make insulin pumps. And the amount of insulin that's delivered by these pumps is sensed by the monitoring device, and it knows how much insulin to secrete to govern the blood sugar. So in a sense, it's an electronic or alternate external pancreas. That's what's meant by the term bionic pancreas, but it requires two components. Is there a cost to this, and will individuals with diabetes have to worry about costs when it's associated with their mobile devices, like the bionic pancreas? So the insulin pumps are currently on the market, and until fairly recently, they weren't integrated with these monitoring systems. So insulin pumps have been managed individually by well-trained patients who know how to deliver the insulin on their own based on finger sticks. So insulin pumps, as I mentioned, have been around for 30 years, and they're, as I mentioned, fairly expensive and have limited warranties, and usually every four or five years have to be replaced. They're predominantly aimed at treating patients with type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetics are sometimes able to get these pump devices, particularly when their pancreases start to run out of insulin production. I'd say they will become more popular in the future, particularly if the cost comes down. I don't envision that happening anytime soon, but you know, in our free market world, maybe competition will lead to a lowering of cost. Great. And people will eventually be able to use their mobile device. To oh, track. they're using them now because there are apps which can be programmed into your mobile devices, which can record the blood sugars from these recording systems. And then the patients can control their insulin delivery to some extent from their handheld device. It's happening already. Which makes it much easier. Well, it means it's easier and also they have to carry around less equipment because there often was a separate reading handheld device. Now they can just have one. John, if a friend came to you and said, I think I have diabetes and I'm not feeling well, Um, you've experienced this, what would you say to them? What would your advice be? Well, as Dr. Riles said, go in, meet with the doctor, get your blood work. Uh, I know I feel bad when I have low blood sugars. I've never had a real high blood sugar. I don't know how that would be. But with the low blood sugar, you start getting a little shaky and sweat. So someone, I could tell someone about that. But It's important, like the doctor said, go see a physician and get some blood work done. Dr. Al, closing thoughts. What are your hopes for the future, as well as your closing thoughts? Well, first off, let me say that if you had to be a diabetic, there is no better time than the present because we have so many medications and devices for managing and controlling diabetes that we never had, even when I was first starting out in medical school. And I, I can tell a patient that I can make their blood sugar normal. Diabetes is a team sport. It requires the effort of a patient, a doctor, sometimes a diabetes educator, other health professionals like eye doctors, podiatrists. So all of these forces have to come together and patients have to be willing participants. So that is essential. They have to participate in their own care. So if patients do that, they can make a big difference. There will be better ways of losing weight than there were in the past. So that weight loss is such an essential component of, of managing type 2 diabetes. And we now have spectacular medications that are out there. In fact, they're being used now for people who are not diabetic to lose weight. 
patients can afford them. These medications are now very expensive, and people who can afford these medicines are paying for it. So I anticipate that these medicines will become much more popular than they are now and will help control a lot of our overweight patients. Everything you're saying sounds very hopeful for the future. Yes, I would agree with that. Unfortunately, diabetes is an expensive disease to manage. So if the uh, healthcare system can cooperate with patients and make these medications more available at reasonable costs, I think we have every expectation that patients' overall health will improve. Thank you. And as you said, also self-responsibility, correct, in terms of watching food and diet nutrition. Yeah, so that requires education and reinforcement. Thank you so much. John, your closing thoughts, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Just as Dr. Rye was saying, the cost of medications, I retired last year and I had an excellent prescription plan. All my meds, I would pay $6 for three months supply. When I went into Medicare, there's the donut hole. And I hit the donut hole the second month. So one med went from $6 to $680. And the other went from $6 just under $400. And Dr. Al and I spoke about that. And that's when we determined that it's time for insulin because I only pay $50 three months for my insulin. But the prices are scary. I have a comment to make relative to this. So the comment is that with the recent uh, federal law changes, insulin has become much less expensive for Medicare patients. And that's made a huge difference. And I anticipate in the future, other insurers will probably follow suit. And insulin will no longer be hundreds of dollars, but $35 a month. So you're saying, so the alternative is the insulin? To me, it is. My job, I couldn't take insulin. I was a truck driver with a CDL license, and I wasn't able to take insulin. After I retired, that's when Dr. Ryle, along with the price of the prescriptions that he had me on, we decided on going on insulin. But he is so right, I can tell you, I've lost 40 pounds since being with Dr. Ryle. And at one point, my A1Cs, and I followed it to the T, the diet, the way to eat. And my blood sugars were slow, and my A1C was in like in the five range, which was unheard of for me. But it's, it's a daily thing. You just can't think about it today and then forget about it for a few days. You got to keep thinking about diabetes. 24-7. John, what are your closing thoughts about managing diabetes and having a full life? I would definitely maintain a proper diet and also be in contact with your doctor. Keep in, like Dr. Ryle says, work as a team and work with your blood. You know, do your blood work. You can survive it. I can do it. So anyone can do it. Thank you so much, Dr. Isle, for being on the program. My pleasure. And thank you so much, John McGlynn, for being on the program as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Charles Isle and his patient, John McGlynn, for your insights and wisdom and education on the management of diabetes in today's world. I'm Patricia Raskin, your host. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. To subscribe to this podcast, visit 
www.southcoast.org forward slash healthy dash aging. While you are there, we want to hear from you. Please take the time to complete a quick survey so we can learn more about the topics for upcoming episodes that you are most interested in to live a healthy lifestyle. Thank you to our hosts, Patricia Raskin and South Coast Health. This podcast is brought to you by creative content developer Raskin Resources Productions and produced by Virtually You.